Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. Today's fearless scripture comes to us from Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 and the following. My child, you must follow and treasure my teachings and my instructions. Keep in tune with wisdom and think what it means to have common sense. Beg as loud as you can for good common sense. Search for wisdom as you would search for silver or hidden treasure. Then you will understand what it means to respect and to know the Lord God. All wisdom comes from the Lord, and so do common sense and understanding. God gives helpful advice to everyone who obeys and protects all those who live as they should. God sees that justice is done, and he watches over everyone who is faithful. With wisdom, you will learn what is right and honest and fair. Wisdom will control your mind, and you will be pleased with knowledge. Sound judgment and good sense will watch over you. Here ends the reading. Okay, here we go with Fearless Sunday. All right, Pastor Tony, question number one. The person asks, I wonder if the Bible is a bit outdated. I recently had a conversation with a relative who normally is a pleasant and level-headed person and the subject of homosexuality came up. She very quickly and loudly said, the Bible says it's wrong. We chose not to have a debate over this, but I've also read that you love your neighbor as yourself. So if your neighbor is gay, shouldn't this person be included? The question is twofold. Number one is the Bible outdated? And number two, should this person be included? The simple answer is yes and yes. The Bible is outdated. It was written thousands of years ago, so it's obvious. Where we are today, we don't understand fully their culture and their values and their principles other than what we find within that document. So yeah, it, it's outdated. Imagine if you found a letter from your great-grandmother and you tried to understand everything about it. There might be some challenges there because of the lapse of time. It's even more when you think about thousands of years. So we have to take that in consideration, number one. Number two, because of that gap, there is a significant need for us to stop and try to understand the original context and the original setting in which people wrote. And that creates some real challenges. Uh, scholars are continuing to find new information from archaeology, from looking at different texts. When we think about just the Dead Sea Scrolls, finding those and the difference that that made so we are always learning more, but I would agree with the question. We are to love, and so if we have questions, 
that's where I tend to come down the hardest, is we love each other. I mean, that's what Jesus talked about. Uh, with regard to the argument around homosexuality, I think there's two things you have to consider. Number one, your view of the Bible, and number two, your view of God. Those two have dramatic impact upon how you're going to read not only those seven texts, but also how you understand the rest of the Bible. So that would be my answer. Very good. And Tony, question number two. Along the same lines, I think. Why does the Bible seem to contradict itself so often? That to me is an awesome question. Because when you realize that the Bible does contradict itself, in those contradictions, we actually learn how to read the Bible. So imagine person A writes down in his manuscript, his uh, papyri that he's writing. And when he's done, he rolls it up and it's put away. One of his followers, person B, comes along and opens it up and reads it, but now, a few decades later, has new understandings, new experiences, and so adds to that. But rather than just erasing what the previous person wrote, they actually build on it. And that's why we see these contradictions. I mean, just in, the perfect example is in the book of Isaiah. When, if you read the very beginning of Isaiah and the end of Isaiah, you realize that they have more in common than this stuff in the middle. Why? More than likely, the person who was the last one to add to the book of Isaiah brought some of that information and put it at the very beginning. So I think what we find there is these people had that flexibility. If they disagreed with someone, they didn't cancel them out. They kept them, but then added their insights. And again, we find this between the New Testament and the Old Testament. So again, it goes back to how you view the Bible. If you see the Bible as coming directly from God, and human beings are literally just the, pin, the hand that holds the pin, then you're going to see contradictions. But if you allow for inspiration to be far more than that, then all of a sudden those contradictions become really exciting. Now I have an opportunity to ask Tony some questions that you, our congregation and community, wanted to ask. So the next question, Tony, is, from our progressive Christian teachings, are we to believe that there is an afterlife? Or does heaven really exist? Words that are attributed to Jesus could make one think that he refers to an afterlife. But I have also heard... <laughs> Other progressive pastors say this is really not what Jesus meant. Jesus was really referring to the here and the now, and not an afterlife. This has always been a topic that other ministers in our church have avoided discussing. Does the Bible actually address this question? As I was growing up, 
I knew for certain what happened when you died. The tradition that I grew up in, we did not believe that when you died, you immediately, your soul went to heaven or to limbo or to hell. Instead, what we believed was that you entered a state of sleep. It was as if you fell asleep and you would awaken again to new life at the resurrect, I mean, at the second coming of Jesus. That would be a bodily resurrection that would take place. That's what I believed. My dad believed the same thing. So keep that in mind as I answer now the rest of the question. In the Old Testament, there seems to be evidence that there is no afterlife. There's texts in wisdom literature where it says that the dead know nothing. The closest we even have to any imagery is a place called Sheol, where the ancestors reside. But there is no hint that there's any type of afterlife there that occurs. Now, with regard to heaven, the closest probably idea that we get is in the New Testament. The Old Testament doesn't talk about that, other than that's where God dwells. The other possibility is that when Abraham and Elijah, I mean, I'm sorry, Moses and Elijah, Moses dies and then is seen to be understood as being in heaven, and then Elijah doesn't die but is lifted up into the heavens. But as far as being a place where you go in the afterlife, the Old Testament doesn't have that. The New Testament seems to, to open up that possibility, open up that door. Uh, Paul, if you remember, he talks about there being actually three different heavens, three different layers of heavens. Uh, so that's a possibility that was there. So does, when Jesus talks about heaven, I, I think he was in that tradition, the Judaism, Judaism in the first century. That's his way of understanding it. What happens, happened over time, though, is heaven, especially on the book, based on the book of Revelation, heaven becomes this place that we are going as human beings to live. So the short answer in the midst of all of that, the, what I came to, the conclusion was, as far as an afterlife, very simple. I don't know. I, I really don't know. And I'm okay with that. So my dad, I thought to myself when he died, I thought if he ends up in heaven instead of being in this state of sleep, is my dad going to say, oh God, you got this all wrong. I, no, 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 no. I have to be back in the grave asleep. Put me back. This is, you got it all wrong. I think my dad would have been happy. If nothing happens when we die, and that's the end of it, our lives, we won't know. And so I guess I go back to that question of, I literally, I don't know. And I'll wait to find out one way or the other when the time comes for me to die. Was Jesus really God? Does that make him unique? among religious founders and figures? And what do I have to believe about Jesus in order to identify as a Christian? 
When I thought about the questions that I might get, because literally this is the first time I'm hearing them, um, this is the one that I thought, wow, if there's going to be a question that people could use against me one way or the other, this was it, um, was Jesus God. But this is Fearless Sunday, so I'm going to be very honest with you. I believe Jesus was God in the same way that you and I are seen as God. When we read the Gospels, we have to remember that we're reading a document that is anywhere from 60 to 90 years after Jesus' death. Number one. Number two, the writers themselves seem to struggle with identifying who Jesus was. One perfect example of this is in the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, when you read it, if you remember that second question about contradictions, we see in the Gospel of John two different views of Jesus. One puts Jesus as just a normal human being, a great teacher. It's what we call low Christology. The other one sees Jesus as being unique. It's the Jesus that says the Father and I are one. Uh, Jesus has the ability to know the future. Jesus is the one who would judge the world. That's what we call a higher Christology. So woven in the book, in the Gospel of John, you actually have these, this tension between these two. And it appears this writer, you know, writing 60-some years later after Jesus, is still struggling to understand who Jesus was. It appears that it was very late for this idea of Jesus being seen as God coming into play. So for me, I will go with the text, and I think the text is vague enough to help us understand that Jesus was, saw himself and was seen by his followers as just being a human being. But he was unique in that there was something about his demeanor, it appears, his teachings, the way he treated people, that made people be attracted to him. And that's why I think there's some people today who would say that if God was going to take human form, he would have appeared in the person similar to that of Jesus. So, for that reason, I don't believe necessarily in the way that I used to believe that Jesus was God, a part of the Trinity. However, now the question is, what does that mean for Christianity? That is a whole other issue because orthodoxy, right belief, has become kind of the litmus test. But when you go back and you look at the creeds that were written, they were written by human beings. And human beings have a tendency to create orthodoxy by defining views that they don't accept as being heresy. And so the expression is, without heresy, there would be no orthodoxy. So I think we have to be careful. I think we have to be very careful in how solid we come down in defining who gets to be labeled a Christian and who does not. All right, you're doing really well, Tony. You're being very fearless, I have to say. Uh, this is question number five, and it's a little more personal. 
On the spectrum of belief, how do you personally identify? Are you a religious humanist? Are you a radical progressive Christian? What are you? And you can also please give us your definition of what a conservative Christian is, a moderate Christian, a liberal Christian, and a progressive Christian in your answer. Oh, labels, right? Um, the challenge with answering this question is literally it's evolving and changing. Thirty years ago, I would have considered myself just a Christian. Other people would have called me a fundamentalist. And I really never went through that evangelical phase because when I left my denomination, I went into the UCC, and at that time, within the UCC, you were just seen as being liberal and progressive. But it took me time to continue to develop my ideas even when I was within the UCC, and that continues to change. So I would consider myself right now what I would call a Christian humanist. I'm a Christian unapologetically. I embrace the life of Jesus. It's part of my DNA. That's all I've known the majority of my life. Even at the age of seven, I have a Bible where in the back of it I wrote, when I grow up, I want to be a Christian pastor. And so even at a very early age, I identified with Jesus. And I still do, even though my view of Jesus has shifted over time. Humanist is, I believe, in humanity. I believe that as we follow the teachings of Jesus, that as human beings, we have the responsibility to do what Jesus talked about, and that is to make the kingdom of God or the reign of God or however you want to refer to it, we need to do that now. We need to work now to make the world a better place. So therefore, I could consider myself a Christian humanist. As far as on this larger spectrum, I'm, instead of using those four labels, I would just break it down into three. Uh, number one would be more of a fundamental conservative side. These are individuals who would hold some of the core beliefs of an infallible Bible, an inerrant Bible, um, God as being omniscient, God being omnipotent, God being theistic, and then the idea of a trinity and Jesus being a part of that, and the idea of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, and the only way that we have the possibility of eternal life is, is if we accept Jesus as our personal Savior. That would be more on the fundamental conservative side. I think the middle part would be those individuals who, because of living in the 21st century and what we know now versus what we even knew 50, 100 years ago is, is different. I think they are maybe not comfortable with some of those fundamental ideas or conservative ideas, but yet they're not comfortable moving beyond them. So they kind of stay right there in the middle. Um, it's just this not questioning, but not willing to move beyond the questions quite yet because of their own comfort level. I completely understand that. I've been there. And then more on the liberal progressive side would be those individuals who hopefully are continuing to evolve. However, 
I have met individuals who are on the liberal side are as fundamental in their liberalness as a conservative is in their ideas. So just because you're conservative, you can still have an open mind or you can have a closed mind. And liberals doesn't mean you're open-minded. You still have to work to be open-minded because I have met liberal Christians who are very closed-minded and very definitive in what they believe as much as a conservative. So that's why I think it's harder to, to stay within just a, a pure la labeling. I think we're shifting all the time. And question number six, this one, um, given I think the polarized climate that we are currently in, this person asks, why are Christians so divided in America? And what are we gonna do with that? I think liberal and progressive Christians, or you would call mainline denominations, are unhappy right now with what they consider to be the evangelicals. Because since about the 70s, the evangelicals have had more political power, more political influence. And in that time, mainline churches have declined in their influence and in their power. All you have to do is pick up the newspaper or go to any website on news, and you'll find articles abundant about evangelicals, either for or against. Very little discussion about mainline churches. Now, if you go back in the 1950s and 60s, it was all about mainline churches. They had the influence. They had the power. And what's fascinating is if you look at what mainline churches wanted back then, it's very similar to what evangelicals want within the political realm today. It's just now the, the, the positions at the table have changed. And people in the mainline churches aren't happy with that shift. And the evangelicals are very pleased with the new power and influence that they now have. So I think we see this is shifting. And as someone mentioned to me this week, it is very quick. For, it is very easy and quick of us to forget history. But when we really understand history we, history, we would realize that it's just repeating itself. And now it's just different players at the plate. Pastor Tony, is it okay to reinterpret Christian symbols or maybe even traditional rituals such as the cross, for instance, in a modern contemporary society. There's a woman who lives in Canada by the name of Greta Vosper, and she is very controversial minister because she came out and said that she was an atheist. Now, I don't have enough faith to claim to be an atheist. I think it requires a great deal of faith, and I don't have that. She, however, it challenges Christians to rethink what we're doing as we come to new understandings with Christian beliefs. 
right now what traditionally happens is within the more progressive churches is they take old ideas and old language and they try to give it new meaning while keeping the language. And at times that becomes really confusing for people. On the other side, as pastors, it's safe because you can use a word and it might mean one thing to one person, but you say it in such a way that this person sitting over here all of a sudden hears something different. But it's really confusing. So yes, I think as we continue to learn more and more, we may need to remove certain types of language. One idea that we have here at Church of the Beatitudes, and again, it's nothing that we've put into place. I'm not sure if we will ever put it into place, but it is something that I'm thinking about and talking with other church members about, and that is regards to baptism. Within Beatitudes, we, I don't think the majority of our members would tell you that they believe that if a child is not baptized, that they won't be saved, for whatever that means. Again, that would be a perfect example. The word saved, what does that mean, right? So, but if, with regard to baptism, there are some individuals who say, well, why are we still doing that then? And so we have played with the idea of having a naming ceremony so that we would actually give people a choice. They could have their child baptized, or they could have a naming ceremony. And so giving people that freedom, not taking anything away from someone, but offering something else to them. And I think we're on the cusp of having to rethink the language that we use and the rituals that we hold. This could be really challenging and uncomfortable, but it also could be really exciting. No pressure, but this question I am really excited that I get to ask you, Pastor Tony. Can God do anything about the evil in the world? Oh, you know, I'm trying to keep my answers to three minutes. Um, <laughs> this is what we call theodicy, the problem of evil. And it is one that large, large amounts of literature has been written by theologians. Um, I do not call myself a theologian. My training is within biblical scholarship. That's my, that's my niche. So, can God do anything about evil? When I used to teach at a liberal arts college, a religious liberal arts college, I used to ask my students this question. Can you tell me one act that is always a sin, that is always evil? Some of them would say murder. And then I would ask them, is the act of killing someone always wrong, or is it based upon the circumstances within which that act occurs? And then another person would raise their hand and say, adultery. And again, I would ask in return, is 
sexual relations with another person, is that the act we're saying that is wrong? Or is it the circumstances in which that takes place? And so, for me, the question of evil is one that is based upon circumstances. I mean, we know there are individuals who do things that we would define as evil, but I don't know if we've taken the time to look at the circumstances that brought that action about. There are people with mental illnesses. There are people that have been so traumatized and so wounded in their lives that they do not know how to deal with the situation that they find themselves in. Now, that doesn't mean that we are not responsible for our actions. We have to be responsible. And we do have to hold people accountable for their actions. But I am very slow to use the word evil quickly because there may be a lot underneath it that we're not aware of. However, if I was to say the closest I would come to calling something evil would be war. And I am frustrated at times how within the United States, how quickly we as Christians support war in the name of our government and even in the name of God. So that's how I would answer it. Wow. I want to first thank our community, our congregation, for everyone that sent in these questions for Fearless Sunday. And of course, I want to thank Pastor Tony. What a really complicated time to be in a position where you're supposed to share your honest reflections on such difficult questions that most of us have spent some time either in communication with ourselves or with others around these questions. And so I want to thank just the collective, Pastor Tony and the congregation, for um, bridging that digital divide. It felt more than any other Sunday, except for our live communion services, that you were actually here with us. And for that, I am grateful. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your fearless Sunday. Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at beatitudeschurch.org backslash online dash giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.